This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, March 26, 2019. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today's reading is from Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had extended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, thank you for being with us this morning. My name is Sam, and I'm the lead pastor here, and we're working our way through this cynical, dark, wonderfully beautiful book called Ecclesiastes. So I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to, to teach us uh, so that I don't get in the way. So if you bow with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. That is why we are here. We do not gather, Lord, to celebrate what we have done, uh, to remember what we have not done, but to declare what you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ, for us that he has died, that he has been raised, that he is returning again to give us ultimately, a new home, Lord. That this world is not all there is, and while we are here, we are citizens of a different land, a different country, living away from our Heavenly Father. So we thank You, Lord, that we can worship You, and that is why we are here. Lord, there's so much in this world that tempts us away from You. And by that I mean, Lord, there are many things that You have created as gifts that we have made into God's. Good things, Lord, that we employ for bad purposes. Good things, Lord, that You have given for us to enjoy that we worship. That we seek to find security and hope and joy in that which was never designed to give it. So Lord, we ask Your forgiveness for that. And as we delve into Ecclesiastes, Lord, I ask that You will Yes, take us in to the true depravity that this world is in, but not leave us there, Lord. Use it, 
the darkness of this world to make your light that much brighter. Draw us, Lord, from this world and remind us of the life yet to come. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We ask this morning that you will move me out of the way. You will speak the words that you need to speak, words of conviction, words of comfort, words to our heart. But Jesus, be present with us this morning, for I know you have gathered who you want to be here this morning to hear your word. It's in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus we pray. Amen. Ecclesiastes, here we go. Hold on to your hats. It's going to be rad. Now, I am a former English teacher, and uh, I like stories and writing and all things literature. So you may be familiar with a Russian writer, Leo Tolstoy. So Leo Tolstoy wrote a short story in 1886 titled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? Maybe you've read it. The story begins when two sisters are arguing over whether peasant life or city life is better. Farm life or urban life. The main character is named Paham. I think that's how you say it. But he is the husband of one of the sisters and he overhears the conversation and he begins to argue for the peasant life. So the peasant life is way better. And he suggests that the charm of the peasant life is that the peasant doesn't have any time to let nonsense settle in his head. The one drawback of peasant life, he says, is that the peasant just doesn't have enough. Doesn't have enough land in particular. And he says, quote, if I had plenty of land, I shouldn't fear the devil himself. And that was the wrong thing to say. The devil, overhearing this boast, desires to give him his wish, and he seduces him with more land that our main character believes is going to give him security. The seduction of more. When opportunity to purchase land presents itself, Pahom purchases it, and by working on this extra land he has obtained, he repays his debts and he lives a more comfortable life. However, it's not satisfying. He wants more. He becomes very possessive of the land that he has, and he creates all kinds of tensions with his neighbors, so much so his neighbors at one point say, look, we're going to burn down your buildings because you're such a jerk. So he decides to move to a larger area of land and another community. There, he grows even more crops and he amasses a small fortune, but he's irritated because he's doing it all on a lot of land that he has to rent. He doesn't truly own it, and he wants more. So finally, after buying and selling a lot of fertile and good land, he's introduced to a community of people called the Bashkers. The Bashkers, he's told, are very simple-minded people, which means they're kind of dumb. But they have tons of land. So, this intrigues our main character, and he goes to this community to buy as much land as he can for the lowest price he can negotiate. The offer of the elder of this community, which is actually the devil in disguise, is very unusual. The offer is this. For a sum of a thousand rubles, it's Russian, for a thousand rubles, Pahom can walk around as large of an area as he wants, starting at daybreak, marking his route with a spade along the way. And if he returns to where he starts, By the sunset of that day, all the land that he has encircled is his. But if he doesn't get back to the start, 
then he loses all of his money and he gets nothing. And so you can imagine Pahom is delighted at this offer. He can get as much as he wants. He believes he can create or cover a great distance and this is like the bargain of a lifetime. So the next day, the sun rises and he takes his spade and he heads out. He starts marking where his land is. And he does this for most of the day, aiming to go as far as he can before the sun sets. But as the day ends, he realizes he is very far away from the starting point. And he runs back as fast as he can to the bashkers who are awaiting. And he finally arrives at the starting point just as the sun sets. And the bashkers are applauding his good fortune, but he is so exhausted from the run, he falls down and dies. And Pahom's servant picks up the spade with which his master had been marking out his land, and he digs a grave in which to bury him, saying this, six feet from his head to his heels was all the land he needed. That's Ecclesiastes. It's a book that is written to prove that there is no gain in gain. No more in more. See, everyone has a desire for more. For this idea of gain or profit. But what we seek isn't found, Solomon will argue, under the sun. The book of Ecclesiastes takes a very honest look at life. And as you read it, just like life, it can be confusing at times. Like, what did he just say? It can be really sad at times. Like, wow, that's dark. And it can be really joyful at times, which is pretty much like life. But in the end, he's going to declare that meaning isn't found in the horizontal world. That you have to go beyond the sun to even find joy in the stuff that's under the sun. Now, the teacher, the preacher, Solomon, is not a cynic. He's not just a pessimist. He's not just like, life sucks, move on. He's not, that's not what he's trying to say. He's an apologist. He's trying to lead us. He is actually trying to point to what is meaningless in order for us to see what isn't. So beginning with chapter 2 here, He's going to embark on the first part of his very intentional experiment. We see that in chapter 1, verse 17, that the wisest guy that ever lived says, I applied, he applied his heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you, heart, with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And I point that out to remind us that this is not some mindless experiment. He is not like a prodigal son who is just giving himself over to indulgence for no reason. He's a man who is keeping his mind about him, having his wisdom, and intentionally trying to experiment with the stuff in the world. He's trying to find if there is any profit 
in pleasure. And so he intentionally indulges in these activities. All activities. Some that are playful pleasures. And some that are very practical pleasures. Like when you hear the word pleasure, you probably think of the most frivolous, foolish, kind of immoral of things. But he actually gives himself to very practical pleasures like work, achievement, accomplishing great things. He says, okay, let's see. I'm going to give myself to these pleasures and see what I can find. The question he's trying to answer is the question that every single human being that I think ever lived seeks to answer, and that is this. Is there anything in the world that can truly satisfy the heart of a human being? Is there anything in this world that can satisfy that emptiness that every human feels? The question for anyone who ever lives is going to drive you either toward creation or by grace toward the Creator. It's going to drive you towards creation or by grace toward the Creator. Now, few of us would probably describe ourselves as pleasure seekers. Maybe a couple of us would. I'm a pleasure seeker, thrill seeker. When we talk about pleasure seeking, I think many of us, if not all of us, because of the country we live in, do subconsciously believe in one thing that we're seeking, and that is this thing called the American dream. We don't say it, maybe. Maybe you don't even think it. But when asked, is there anything in the world that can truly satisfy the heart of a human being, the American dream, the American mentality, our culture's kind of drive is, yeah, here's what will satisfy. A little more. A little more. John D. Rockefeller, right? Famous American industrialist who asked, how much money is enough because he was so wealthy? And his answer, a little more. A little more. We all struggle with a riddle a little more. And there's been a gospel put forward, a false gospel, the American prosperity gospel, that is just a gospel version of the American dream in all the wrong ways. It, for, it further perpetuates this false promise suggesting that the gifts of God are actually the goals of God. That the gifts of God are actually the goals of God. That's not true. The gifts of God are good, but they are leading us to a different goal than just ending in the gifts themselves. The prosperity gospel teaches us that health should be pursued, wealth should be pursued, pleasure should be expected. That's the result of faith and life with God. Well, Ecclesiastes seems to say the opposite, and Solomon calls this life under the sun apart from God if it just ends in those things. Truly, in today's world, if you think about it, and and maybe you have, we have more access to pleasure than any time in history. I don't mean the worst kinds of pleasure. I mean, when I order a Thatcher for my yard, it's there the same day. That's crazy. We have an instant gratification culture in both the bad ways and many good ways. Our world has more access, 
more quickly to pleasure in any time in history, and yet people seem more miserable than they've ever been. We have, in measurable ways, a higher and better quality of life than ever. And yet, it seems like the level of contentment for life is lower than ever. So before there was an American dream giving false promises, there was this Hebrew dream by Solomon. And he declares, or at least concludes, that it's a nightmare. Because it actually makes promises that never truly satisfy. He comes to the conclusion that all good things in life are not good enough without God. But here's the deal. We don't believe Him. We will say we believe Him on a Sunday morning. A couple of you will amen. I know you will. The older you are, the more you probably will feel that is true. I know that because you've experienced a lot in life. You, if, for lack of a better analogy, you've gone through a Solomon experiment. The younger you are, you're still, I think I need to learn this for myself. And Solomon, like a wise grandfather saying, I'm telling you, that you can get all the good things in life and it's not good enough without God. Is there anything in the world that can truly satisfy the human heart? Much like the character in Tolstoy's story, we believe our search for meaning is limited. That if I was unrestrained, if I wasn't held back, if I could do whatever I want, whenever I want, if I could get those things, if I could accomplish those things, achieve those things, I would be content. You're just like him, thinking if I just had a little more. A little more being just something different than I have. And we must all come to the place which is really hard to do. I, just, I know it feels easy for me to say this, but know that like as anything I preach, I'm held accountable for, and I have to look, what do I believe about this? So let me sit on this little painful nugget for a while, right? Like a piece of sand and an oyster irritating until it becomes a beautiful pearl. Huh? Good analogy. Now, <laughs> that everything you have and everything you don't have is a gift of God. Everything you have, okay, I get that, and everything you don't have. But if I had this, no. Everything you have and everything you don't have is a gift of God. And you are called to enjoy that gift in that context as something received from the Lord. And that's what Ecclesiastes will take us to many different times. But because we don't believe Solomon, he's explained. So let me, let me tell you, I'll, I'll give you more. I'll give you my experiment. And what does he say? Well, he, he performs the experiment we all wish we could. At some place in here, maybe not every bit of it, but there is a part in here, my guess is you're more. He says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. We all want something. We all want something that we don't have. 
He took it. Unrestrained, unlimited, able to get it. And this was his conclusion. What are some of the things? Well, let's look in verse 2. First thing he tried, laughter and humor. Manists need to be more lighthearted and laugh about life more. He said, I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Everyone likes to laugh. I love to laugh. When my kids cry, nine times out of ten, I make a joke to try and make them laugh. Maybe because I'm a horrible dad, or maybe I just like to laugh. I don't know. We like humor. In our culture today, in the YouTube, Vine world, you know, comedy culture, man, we can just sit and look at comedy and funny, dumb, dorky things all the time. And guess what? It's pretty fun. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's, it, it makes you laugh. Laughter is fantastic. I love to laugh. I love a good joke. I can't stand uptight people who can sit around like I have to be serious about everything. Lighten up, joke. If you walk into my family sometimes, we are joking like crazy all the time. You think, this guy's a pastor? Absolutely. Laugh a little bit. If you don't think Jesus laughed, something's wrong with you. I guarantee you, those dudes he was hanging out with were weirdos, and he was laughing at them all the time. You think fishermen didn't make jokes? Hey, Jesus, he probably went, Peter, come on, right? Who knows? But they're laughing. Proverbs tells us that a joyful heart's good medicine. It's good medicine to laugh. But you know what? Even though laughter is good for the soul, it can only last so long. It's a temporary distraction. And it is a distraction. It is an escape. But you can't escape the honest pains of life forever by laughing. Momentarily you can. It won't heal the wounds. It might cover them for a bit. And there are those who a little laughter helps, but it doesn't help when the laughter stops. So he says that. He's like, he's mad. It doesn't help. He also says in verse 3, he tried alcohol or substances. He says, I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine. How do I cheer my body? How do I make myself feel good with, with stuff, putting stuff into it? Food, wine. He says, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom. This was intentional. This wasn't just, woo, let's party! He's like, no, let's see if this works. I'm going to smoke it, I'm going to drink it, I'm going to snort it, I'm going to put a pill in it. I'm going to see if it works. I'm going to see if it fills the emptiness in me. He says, I use my wisdom to lay hold on folly. Whatever you think is foolish, I'm going to try it. And see if I can fill that void in my heart. So he might see what was good for the children of man to do unto the Son. Just to take alcohol. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about alcohol and not all bad. Later in Ecclesiastes, Psalm will praise alcohol. It's a, it's a great way to lift the heart. The same Solomon will say in the Proverbs how dangerous it is. Like, how do I deal with that? Welcome to the paradox of Scripture at times. Essentially, we learn that, that joy... And even joy in food and drink is a gift of God. The problem is not enjoying God's gift. The problem is when that gift becomes a God and enslaves you. 
and you're trying to use it to get something which it was never designed to give. Drinking and eating and so many things that we would consider foolish are ultimately not intrinsically evil, but they won't resolve the inner emptiness that we have. And we have a culture and many people in here who that's part of their story struggling to find meaning and finding a bottle instead. So, those are the natural kind of pleasures, but he does more than that. It's not just bad stuff or things we might naturally think are bad. He tried art and architecture, right? Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses. So Solomon, if you didn't know, he was an artist and he was an architect. In 1 Kings chapter 4, it says he spoke 3,000 proverbs. He wrote 1,005 songs. He was a creator. He created. And many artists and people create as a, as a means to express. And that means to express is, a, is an attempt to fill that emptiness. I just need to create and, and write and paint. And maybe that's you. He was also an architect. He built many buildings. He built palaces. He built man caves. He built vacation homes. The house of God, right, the temple, took seven years and hundreds of thousands. I'm mean, just so many people and resources, it's hard to measure. And his own house, though, took 13 years. So some of us, like, right. Man, if I could just be creative, I could just, whether it's carving wood or painting or building, whatever, for you, that's, you know, I, I'm not able to do that. I'm not able to, to be the sculptor I want it because I got to pay the bills. I don't have time to do whatever. If I could just have the freedom to express myself, you know, and not have to deal with the, the regular problems of life, things would be not empty anymore. Or many of us think about that dream home. Oh, the dream home. We create the Pinterest page of our dream home. Of what it would be like if I, if I had unlimited resources. If I could live where I wanted to. right? Because I, I don't like my neighborhood. But I can't afford anywhere else. I don't like my home, but I can't, I can't build. If I could build my home, I could do like I would do this. It would be great. And we devote ourselves to that idea or even that effort. Or the vacation home. Ah, oh, I don't know how many times Kaylin and I have been like, I wish my grandparents would have bought a cabin somewhere. If I had money, we, we wouldn't struggle in the summer to figure out what to do. We'd like, we just have a vacation home on a lake. We'd go there, be beautiful. You dream about it. Now that dream home, right? Maybe you start building it and you you create it around you only to have to give it up when you die and then someone else gets it with their own 30-year mortgage and goes over and over and round and round again. Or that vacation home gets wiped out by a river and you're like, well, there goes that, which actually literally happened to a family member of mine. He had it all. He had the dream home. He had the vacation home. He had the boat. And he ends with saying, what use is it? but we don't believe him. He tried nature and the environment. We go, oh, 
Maybe you're a, a gardener, right? Maybe you're just like, man, my idea of heaven is like running through forests and meadows, barefoot, rivers and waterfalls and climbing mountains and just looking at the epic landscapes that are going to be way better in the new heavens and new earth than they are now. be awesome. Check out what he did. I planted vineyards for myself. Verse 5, I made myself gardens and parks. Right? He didn't say, I started uh, public parks. He made himself parks. I think I'll have myself a park now. Planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools, which are probably lakes, from which to water the forest of growing trees. He didn't plant gardens. He planted forests. We later learned that he also shipped in peacocks and apes and all kinds of animals. He made it a zoo. That'd be cool, right? And you go, what are you doing? Like, who does that? Like, well, think about this. In many ways, he's attempting to create what amounts to a, a secular Eden. A paradise without God. And guess what he does? He achieves it. He builds paradise without God. And he goes, it's empty. I had the paradise. I built Eden. And because God wasn't in it, it meant nothing. It meant nothing. He does more. He tried power and possessions in verse 7. He says, I bought male and female slaves, which is really about power and possession and servants. He had slaves who were born in his house. He also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me. Like he had a staff that would fill like, you know, a stadium probably. All serving him. If you read in 1 Kings chapter 4, beginning in verse 22, it describes the daily rations for the people who served him, basically. Solomon's provision for one day, it said, was 30 cores of fine flour. And you go, what is a core? Which is kind of difficult to figure out. But I did figure it out. And estimated, it's like over 10,000 pounds of flour. Daily rations. How much bread 10,000 pounds of flour makes? 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle. That's a lot of ribeye steak for the day. 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, fat and fowl. Daily rations. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. He had his own private army. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his own month, and they let nothing to be lacking. So I call this power and possessions, right? We all, like, man, if I just built up my business, if I just had the success I could have where I got staff, and I'd be set. And he had all the success he can get. And all the people serve him. He could get whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. Just, I need this. That was there. And an army ready to go find it. 
emptiness. You know, Bill Gates, well, duh. I'm sure you all know Bill Gates. If I say that, maybe in Louisiana, maybe they don't know that, but we're here, we know. Bill Gates was taking, uh, a picture was taken of him in line at Dick's Drive-In a while back. I don't know how long ago. You get the richest man in the world at the time in line at Dick's Drive-In, which, if you ever had Dick's Burger, I can understand why you'd want to be in line, right? And so it kind of went viral, and people were like, wow, richest man in the world in line at Dick's Drive-In. So they asked him about it, and he said, look, having money certainly makes life easier and more comfortable. But he said, at the end of the day, a hamburger tastes like a hamburger. You're like, yeah, but you got like billions of dollars too, right? Like, that makes a hamburger taste a little bit better, right? You can, <laughs> you can buy Dick's driving if you want to. And he's like, no. And this is where he's at. He tried money and treasure. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Because I assure you, take 100 people, 99 out of 100 would say, in answer to the question, what would make your life a little bit easier, a little bit better, a little more comfortable? If I could pay for this, if I could buy this, money. We don't often admit that. If I could get out of this debt, if I had money to buy this, he says in verse 8, he gathered for himself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. At the peak of his net worth, they estimated he was worth $2.2 trillion. $2.2 trillion! According to the Bible, King Solomon received 25 tons of gold each year for 39 years of his reign. That's hundreds of billions of dollars a year. In 1 Kings 10, it says, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, besides which came from the explorers and from the businesses of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. King Solomon, verse 16 of chapter 10, 1 Kings, made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold, three minas of gold went into each shield, and put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Think about that. I have so much gold, what shall I do with it? I know, I'll make shields, not for my armies, but to decorate my walls in a house that's in a forest that I don't even live in. It's got a little bit of extra money. Some expendable income. The king also made a great ivory throne, overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps. The throne had a round top. On each side of the seat were armrests, two lions standing beside the armrests, while 12 lions stood there, one on each end of the step on six steps. A throne of, with lions, surrounded by lions, covered in gold, made of ivory. It said, the like of it was never made in any kingdom. Now, Maybe you're not into thrones, okay? But can you imagine getting up on that throne with lions surrounding you, ivory looking down? You got literally thousands of servants just waiting for you. You're going to be like, I'm the man. Like, how could you not feel like you're the man in that moment? Because you've got all the power in the world, 
all the glory in the world. Everyone's looking to you on your amazing throne that doesn't look like any throne ever. Hey, where's that throne today? Gone. Meant nothing. Meaningless. Hey, where's that house in the forest with all those gold shields? Gone. Meant nothing. And he realizes it before he's dead. Every three years, his fleet of ships would bring gold and silver and ivory and apes and peacocks. Like it never stops. It keeps flowing. He's got more than he could ever want, spend, or need. And he gets to the end, he said, what use is it? We don't believe him, though. Now, for some of you, money, like, I don't care about money. It's not my, not my thing. I mean, helpful, but I don't need money. I got enough to live on. That's all I want. Bill, pay my bills. But music, oh, music. I know we got some musicians in here. And I got what everyone's got phone and iPods and stuff like that, little earbuds you put in your you know, world and you check out. Verse 8, it says, I got singers, both men and women. Now, you got to understand, Solomon didn't like merely own records. He owned bands, right? The richest man in India last year hired Beyonce to come do a concert for his daughter's wedding. Solomon would have owned Beyonce, right? <laughs> hey, put on the Rolling Stones. No, they're right here. Bring them out, right? We love music. And I want to like be flipping about music. Music is, is, impacts our culture incredibly. I think many of us put in our earbuds and, and we use it to escape. There's been all kinds of TED Talks about how music uh, changes our emotions and, and, uh, and really even rewires the brain at times. The power of music can't be really uh, underestimated. But yet, did you know that musicians and creative artists are fifth in the top ten professions of highest rates of depressive illness? And studies show that the most successful often die 25 years earlier than the average person. Why are they so miserable? Because in many ways, music does soothe. Much like humor, it soothes the emptiness, but it doesn't fill it. It doesn't fill it. And then... Of course, Solomon tried sex and relationships. He had many concubines in verse 9, in the delight of the sons of man. And this is the guy who said, I withheld myself no pleasure. 1 Kings 11 says Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He could literally sleep with a different woman every day for nearly three years without duplication. Now, I... Well, it would surprise you to say that our culture has a little bit of a problem with sexuality these days. And the addiction to pornography is going out the ceiling in the church and outside the church. I don't think it's G.K. Chesterton, but it's ascribed to him. But he said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. He's trying to fill that God-shaped emptiness in his life through a relationship that ultimately is not designed to satisfy, not that way. Again, though, sexual intimacy, even in the confines of marriage, provides a way of escape, 
a momentary reprieve, right, of like, oh, okay, I can just be free for a second, but it doesn't take but a little bit for all the flood of decision-making and difficulty and pain to come back again. It was never designed to give us what God says comes from Him. And then finally, the popularity and success, verse 9 as he's sitting on his awesome throne, he says, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my wisdom remained with me. You gotta understand that everyone loved Solomon globally. Everyone respected Solomon. Everyone came to Solomon, even those outside of his own nation, praising him. He got more compliments and pats on the back and regard of, Man, you are awesome. 1 Kings 10 says, When the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with every great retinue, camels bearing spices and much gold and precious stones. And when he came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all of her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the Queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house she had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, the cupbearers, his burnt offerings he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. <gasps> oh my gosh! He had everything. At one point, the Bible describes that he only had utensils and bowls made of gold. Silver was worthless. And everyone was impressed. He comes to the end of his life after surveying all of that. Everything he did, everything he achieved, and let's be careful not to dismiss what he achieved. He achieved more than anyone. You literally could see like what Solomon's legacy, I mean like practically, materially speaking, he built that, he built that, he built that, he did that. He has, all, he has a huge resume of stuff that he did that would you know, be greater than anyone. And after surveying everything that he accomplished in his life, What's his conclusion? Verse 11, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity. Empty. Like the vapor that goes and you can see it, but it quickly fades away. You can't grasp it. It has no substance that lasted. It was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Living in this life only, there was nothing to be gained. What about this? Tried it. What about this? Did it. The pleasure of seeking and the creativity of making was all empty. And it's not that the pleasure that he experienced was joyless or that the achievement was useless. It's that the pursuit of pleasure with the hope of gaining what he desperately desired in his heart, because that's what he's asking, was heart questions. Not just mind questions, not just body questions. I said to my heart, I'm going to test my heart. Can my heart be satisfied? And actually he said, my flesh can be satisfied, but my heart, it can't be. 
It cannot satisfy the desires of the heart. Everything under the sun did not quench his spiritual thirst. He was still thirsty and there was nothing more to drink. Solomon was great in all of the best and worst ways. He was the master of more. And he knew it because time and time again he says in different ways that he experienced and achieved more than all who came before him. He would have won every one-up debate at a dinner party or locker room conversation. Oh, what'd you do? What about this? What'd you do? No, I did this. How great are you? Let me tell you how great I am. Right? Reminds me of a comedian who told a story about the guys who went to the moon who always have like the ultimate story at a dinner party. Guy would be like, yeah, you know, I, I did this and I was a really good soccer player. And the guy would walk him and go, yeah, well, I walked on the moon. They always have the one up. Solomon, like anything we could think of, he was greater. He did it. And yet, we learn that Solomon wasn't merely the most successful man in all the good and bad ways. He was likely the most miserable. Living merely as a taker of pleasure or a producer of pleasure in the end means nothing. His life was literally full and his soul was empty. He realized what we all do as we get older. And he is speaking to the younger generation. We realize that given enough time or age or tragedy, it all fades away. Perhaps this is why Jesus, the only man smarter and wiser than Solomon, said, warning us, right? I say warning, we read this sometimes as a command, but it's like a a loving warning. Solomon knew it all because he indulged in it all. Jesus knew it all because he created it all, including us. And he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. He doesn't say, don't enjoy some of the treasures on earth. Solomon will hit that hard. Like, we should enjoy, but in their proper place. Say, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you tell me what you fear losing most or what you fear not getting most, I will tell you where your treasure is and what your idol is and where your heart actually resides. See, when you read the result of this experiment, you think like this shouldn't be misery, right? You see some celebrities succeed, they have everything. Why are they so miserable? Because there's an emptiness there that is yet to be filled. And we see kind of maybe why Solomon went this direction. Why he became miserable. Why that was his conclusion. As you read through verses 3-8, through you see a pattern form in having 
indulged or practiced all these pleasures or actually built cool stuff. What does he say? I made great works. I built and planted for myself. I made for myself. I made myself. I bought for my house. I gathered for myself. I indulged myself. My wisdom. My desires. My toil. My life. My family. My job. Last time I checked, Jesus says, I bought you with a price and your life is not your own. Do you realize that we were designed to glorify God? That's what we were made to do, to make God great, to reflect His greatness. And so if your joy ultimately is designed to consummate and climax on yourself, you will never, ever be satisfied. Because it's a design. And you're working against how you were designed. It's called hedonism, right? The pursuit of pleasure through earthly self-indulgence, trying to find satisfaction. And every single person has that in them. And you know what that reveals? There actually is a deeper spiritual thirst that we have. Solomon's just the one who's been honest with it. Oh yeah, I've been trying to shove stuff in. Nothing fits. Keep trying like, nope, that didn't work. Try this, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Former pastor and author John Piper's life has been devoted to an interesting concept he calls Christian hedonism. And namely, that's the conviction that God's ultimate goal in this world, His glory, and our deepest desire to be content are one and the same. That God is actually designed so that He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That when we seek to find satisfaction in God Himself and not just His gifts, He is most glorified and we find ourselves most satisfied. Not only is God the supreme source of satisfaction for the human heart, but God is actually magnified when we make that our pursuit. You see, God doesn't want to tell us the desires we have are evil. And go, no, 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 just don't have desires. Don't have hunger. Right? Think about that. I, I have hunger. Don't be hungry. But I'm not hungry. Don't be thirsty. But I'm, I'm thirsty. What does that mean? What is the fact that you have an emptiness gurgling up inside of you to be filled? That's not a bad thing. It's that the desires you have need to be directed. Need to be directed beyond the sun, as C.S. Lewis says. And I think I've probably read this quote before because I just love it. It's out of Weight of Glory. It says, It would seem that our Lord finds that our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Messing with such small things in comparison to infinite joy. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine was meant by the offer 
of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's Ecclesiastes. That infinite joy that is spoken of is eternal life in the presence of God. It's restored relationship with our Creator, living how He's designed us to be. And that comes and is promised through faith in Jesus Christ. Not in something we can achieve, not in something we can do, not in something we can avoid not doing, but in trusting and putting our faith in Jesus Christ that He lived the life I was supposed to live perfectly and died the death that I deserve because I lived very imperfectly. See, Ecclesiastes is one of God's ways of saying, look, I know you won't admit it, I maybe don't see it, but this world is more broken than you realize, and I created you for something more satisfying than you can ever imagine. There is a more, but it's not found here. This is why Jesus tells us to set our minds on the things above, to seek His kingdom first, to place Him at the center of our life so that we actually might see everything else in its right place and then actually enjoy it rightly. Unless you understand alcohol or sex or power or art or anything as gifts of a God who loves us and has designed those gifts even to give Him glory, you'll never actually fully enjoy those gifts even. Jesus tells us that nothing in this world can give us the gain that we long for. In fact, as one writer said, Jesus is the gain that we long for. He is the more, and He offers it freely. He didn't say, get yourself cleaned up. Get your nose out of the slum. He comes into the slum and says, let me get you out of there and give you something incredibly more satisfying. Stop drinking the toilet water. But, but it's keeping me alive. Barely. Drink the fresh water. I'll close briefly in John chapter 4. Jesus is speaking to a young woman at a well. Maybe you're familiar with the story. She's a woman that uh, clearly is somewhat of an outcast from her community. And she's there by herself. And as he talks to her, they start talking about water and, and drawing water out of the well and things of that nature. And at one point, Jesus says, hey, why don't you go get your husband? And she says, oh, I don't, I don't have a husband. Yeah, I know, you've had a bunch of them. And what you learn about this woman at least it's implied that she has spent many, many years seeking to quench her own spiritual thirst through broken relationships. And what does Jesus tell her? As He points to the well, He says, look, everyone who drinks of this water under the sun, they're going to thirst again. They will never quench it. No matter how you drink of it, you'll be thirsty tomorrow or thirsty tomorrow. He says, whatever drinks of the water that I give him will never, ever be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And you know what that shows? Is that I won't have to seek something out there to fill the emptiness because the emptiness is being filled from within by Christ. That's the promise of Christ. 
It isn't, ah, the world's bad. It's like, no, the world's broken. And you're going to try to find satisfaction in it. And Jesus came into the world, gave up everything to show you that he was the way to get back into the garden to experience the fullness that he designed us to experience in the beginning. I pray that you will know Christ that way. Let's pray.